So we are in Hebrews chapter 3. If you have your Bible, let's open as we continue our study. Hebrews chapter 3. You can find your place there. We will put these words on the screen in a little bit. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible, you can, you can look there also. We sang that song, that hymn, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. I am bound for the promised land. If you're not familiar with that language, like when we sang that, you say, I don't even know what we're talking about when we're using this kind of language of Canaan and rest. If you're not familiar, that, that language and imagery, is, it's from the Bible, it's from the Old Testament, from the time of God's people, the nation of Israel. God had rescued his people out of Egypt, slavery in Egypt, he redeemed them out of Egypt. He rescued them, made, him, made them his people. He brought them to Mount Sinai, and they entered into this covenant with him through Moses. We call it the Mosaic Covenant of the Law, this great revelation in the Old Testament. They left Mount Sinai and began to journey through the wilderness. That was God's route through the wilderness to the promised land of Canaan. It's called that because God promised it to Abraham centuries before that. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will give you this land as an inheritance. And they have that promise, and they're heading toward the promised land. That's God's gift, his blessing, where he will dwell with them. And in order to get into the promised land, they must cross the Jordan River, it's like they crossed out of the Red Sea, they have to cross the Jordan River to enter. So that's the language on Jordan's stormy banks. And they are stormy banks. The wilderness is trial, it's hard, it's testing. So we're on stormy banks, gazing, looking to the promised land. So the hymn writer is applying that imagery and that reality of God's people in the Old Testament. He's applying it to us as Christians. We have been redeemed, purchased through Christ, in, in fact, by the blood of the Lamb, which the Passover just pointed towards. We've entered into a new covenant in Christ. And we are now, if you understand this perspective, we are now, as a church, we're in the wilderness we're in the wilderness period bound for the promised land. And the promised land becomes a type of the eternal kingdom, the heavenly Jerusalem, God's ultimate rest. That's what that hymn refers to. And I mention that because that is precisely the perspective of the author of Hebrews. It's exactly his perspective, especially in the opening section, Hebrews chapter 1 through chapter 4. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, 13 is really the big section. And he has this perspective in mind. Let me just summarize for us what we've seen and what we're going to see in this large section. So keep that analogy in mind of the Old Testament people of God, Mount Sinai, 
through the wilderness, headed to the promised land. And here's what the writer of Hebrews is impressing. Remember, his, his great burden in this book, his pastoral burden, is that we would hold fast to Christ. In this wilderness time of trial and testing, we would hold fast to Christ. And so he begins the book, first two chapters, the God who spoke at Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, and he spoke by angels and through Moses, has now spoken definitively in his son. So that revelation back there is eclipsed. In fact, it's fulfilled by this greater revelation in not through angels, but through his son. He has given his son. His son is the revelation. And so he's emphasizing the superiority of the son, Jesus, as the final climactic revelation that he has brought this word of salvation and his exhortation, pay attention, don't neglect it. And he compares it back to that Sinai revelation, beginning of chapter 2. And he says, if, if that word back there, people didn't escape if they set it aside, how shall we escape if we neglect this greater revelation now that's in the sun? So that's, that's his analogy. He's drawing out this analogy between Sinai and what has come in Jesus. And he's showing the superiority of Jesus as the Son in bringing it. Now, having shown the superiority of Christ and the revelation he brings and how he comes to be exalted. He's the exalted Son, and he comes to that through his incarnation and his sufferings. He comes to be our high priest. He's shown that. Now, he's, he's going to pick up that great work of Jesus, high priest, a little bit later. But now he comes, he's continuing on, and he comes to his main application. And here it is. So here's the second bullet. And this is what we'll begin to see this morning. Avoid the unbelief of God's people after Sinai, when they're in the wilderness, who failed to enter his rest. Canaan. Hold fast to Christ. So that's, that's the application in this first section. That's where he's going. That's what we'll begin to see this morning. So he's extending this imagery from Sinai. We've received this final word. Now, what happened after Sinai? Do you remember the first stage of that wilderness journey ended in complete disaster? The entire generation fell in unbelief under God's judgment. They didn't enter the promised land. And his main takeaway is very simply, don't follow their example. You people of God today, don't follow their example. That's what he's getting at here. So he's, he's transitioning now to this application, and it's a warning. And we're going to start here this extended warning passage here in chapter 3 and 4, and we're going to see several of these type of warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And as he warns us, he is urging us to persevere in the faith. Hold fast, key word, hold fast to Christ. That is, keep your eye fixed on Jesus, keep your eye fixed on Canaan's fair and happy land. Don't, don't turn back to Egypt, to that slavery. So that's what he's 
showing us here or exhorting us to. So look at chapter 3, verse 6 is where we left off as he's transitioning now to this great application in these two chapters. He shows us the superiority of Jesus to Moses. We saw that last week. Moses, the great mediator of that old revelation, prior revelation. How much greater is the son now? So he's shown us that, and then he gets to it. Look at verse 6. Christ was faithful as a son over his house, his household, over God's house. And then he says it. Whose house we are. We are the household of God in Christ. If we hold fast. There's that word. If we hold fast our confidence, that is our boasting, our confidence in Christ and drawing near to God through Christ. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope, our inheritance, if we're holding fast. But you hear it, don't you? In that if, if the necessity of perseverance persevering in faith, continuing to hold fast. So that, that transitions him now into this extended warning. So let's, let me read the rest of chapter 3. We won't get that far, but let me read it so you hear all of it here in this warning. So you can follow on the screen or just in your Bible. He continues on. Having said, if we hold fast the confidence and the boast of our hope, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial or testing in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation, and I said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not Enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast, there it is again, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke or as in the rebellion. For who rebelled when they heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. The danger of unbelief. That's the heading. That's what he's highlighting here. You can tell it by the ending there, verse 19. Why ultimately didn't they enter? Because of unbelief. Belief, their hard-hearted response. So this is our author now, his warning and his exhortation. Don't, don't imitate this generation of God's people who rebelled in unbelief. And how strong this warning is, how powerful that example is. 
He reminds us with that series of questions at the end, beginning verse 16 there. Who, who were they? Who were they that fell? He says, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses, all of those that God redeemed who, who walked through the Red Sea on dry land, who were fed manna, who drank water from the rock, all of those died in the wilderness in unbelief. Do you hear the power of that example? And he's just exhorting us, be watchful, beware. Don't imitate that. And as he warns, again, it's a call to persevere. It's a call to hold fast. You see it again, verse 14? It's like he said in verse 6, if, well, here it is again, for we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. The need for perseverance until the end. That's what he's stressing here. All through this letter, he's going to stress it. As I said, these readers are in danger for various reasons of turning back, falling away. No, hold fast until the end. The need for perseverance in faith, holding to Christ until the end. Now, it's my, my opinion, maybe, my observation that in the church today, the necessity of perseverance is seldom, if ever, discussed. Not often. On the one hand, maybe on the more, there, there's maybe kind of crass, really deficient views of once saved, always saved kind of language that means all that matters is the decision I made when I was six or 18. Doesn't matter. Here on out. It's kind of like fire insurance. There's that kind of crass view. Or, or perhaps better, and just we love to emphasize rightly our security in Christ. We're singing of it this morning. We delight in it. The end of Romans 8 is wonderful. <laughs> Delighting in our security in Christ. We, we like to talk about God's unconditional love and his unconditional forgiveness. We're just not that comfortable with conditions. If, that's a condition. Do you hear it? Those are, in grammar, conditional sentences. If, if, it makes us nervous. What do we do with these ifs? What do we do with these warnings? What does this perseverance mean? So, over these next weeks, in this section of Hebrews, we will, it's not just this section though, it's going to be all through Hebrews. We're just going to keep hitting this. So, we will carefully consider the truth of perseverance in the faith what it means, how does it apply to us, Christians? Because what I'm struck by throughout Hebrews, look at verse 12. This is what I'm struck by, who he's addressing. Take care, 
brothers and sisters. That's us. He doesn't say, take care, you deceivers, you, you, you so-called Christians. He doesn't say, take care, you pretenders. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there should be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief. What do we do with this? He is addressing believers. Those who are partakers of a heavenly calling, holy brothers and sisters, we saw it last week. That's what's gripping to me. So how do we understand these? How do they relate to us? How do they relate to the security we have in Christ? So that will develop that over these next few weeks. So be thinking on that this morning to kind of set the table for us. I simply want to focus on Psalm 95. If you didn't see it, so the beginning there of the text we read, verses 7 through 11, he just quotes Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, by the way. He just quotes that. And then he's going to draw application and exposition of it. But the first thing he does is quote it, and he quotes it in a way that he wants us to hear it directly. Like these words of Psalm 95 apply directly to us. So before we get to his application and exposition, let's just this morning think on this quotation from Psalm 95 verses 7 through 11 as a word to us. Let's just hear this word to us directly and then we'll think more about application and exposition in the rest of three and four. So I'm going to do this under, under three parts as we think of Psalm 95. The use of Psalm 95, the meaning of Psalm 95, and the exhortation of Psalm 95. Okay, so first, the use of Psalm 95. That is our author's use of it. He loves to quote, doesn't he? This is a sermon. Remember, this is, this is not just, this is a sermon letter. He loves to use the Bible. The author's use Note a couple things. First, this use of Psalm 95 facilitates the author's connection between that wilderness generation who died off and God's people today, to us. This, this is what makes the length for the author, facilitates his link. He, he doesn't have to go back to the book of Numbers and to the wilderness and draw out things there. He just uses Psalm, Psalm 95 is a ready-made, spirit-inspired exhortation to us based on those events. So that's where he goes. In fact, Hebrews 3 and 4 is really an exposition and application of Psalm 95. Remember I said this... This letter is not like any other letter in the New Testament. It's a sermon. It's a, he calls it a word of exhortation. It's a sermon letter. And what's he do? In he takes Bible and he exposits and he applies. Because that's what sermons should do. Bible, use the Bible and explain it and apply it. And so that's what he does. And so we are in for a real treat here because he's going to take Psalm 95 and he's going to open it to us and show it to us. So that's first his use. 
What is Psalm 95? Let me just give you a word about what this psalm is. It's the Holy Spirit's interpretation of Israel's rebellion at Kadesh Barnea and the application to the worshiping people of God. That's what Psalm 95 is. It's the Holy Spirit's both interpreting those events in the wilderness, specifically at Kadesh, I'll get to that in just a moment, and then applying it to the worshiping people of God. Psalm 95, to us. Just note a few things. Look at verse 7. Do you notice how he introduces the quote? Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, wow, the Holy Spirit Psalm 95, that's what he quotes. Again, we see this all through our author. Our author is not so much concerned with human authorship of Scripture. He loves to emphasize the divine authorship of Scripture. That's what he does here. These are the Holy Spirit's words. The divine authorship of the Psalms. Now, that's remarkable with the Psalms because the Psalms are mostly the people's response to God. And yet he says it's Holy Spirit written. Isn't that amazing? He seldom names authors. He's only going to do it one time. In fact, he's going to do it with this very psalm, Psalm 95. Later in chapter 4, he's going to say, David said. And the only reason he brings up the authorship, David, the human authorship there, is because the timing of when this psalm is written is all important to his explanation of the psalm. We'll see how careful he is expositing the psalm. He cares when it's written in the context of redemptive history matters, and we'll see that. So, yes, it has a human author, but it's the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. That's what we believe every time we open this book. This is God's word. And the Holy Spirit, the way he's quoting that, you see it? Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, that is, this is exactly what the Holy Spirit is still saying to us. To us. The Holy Spirit, now this morning, is speaking these words to us just as much as he did to the original readers of Psalm 95. Do you get that? The Holy Spirit is speaking. That's why I want to look just at the psalm, because it's a direct word to us. That reflects a little bit more of the direct nature of the psalms. Written in a more general sense to the worshiping people of God. And especially, you notice the first word of the quote, do you see that? Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, <laughs> today, which just helps universalize this psalm, today, right now, <laughs> it's relevant. These very words are directly relevant for us. So I said it's the Holy Spirit's, it's his interpretation and application of what happened at Kadesh Barnea, to the worshiping people of God. Why do I say it like that? Because it's a psalm. It's Psalm 95. Do you know Psalm 95? He's quoting verses 7 through 11. He's quoting the second half. Do you know the first half of Psalm 95? Let me just read it. You have to turn there. Just listen. This is Psalm 95. It may be familiar to you. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord, Yahweh, is a great God, a great king above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it is he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. 
Let us kneel before Yahweh, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's the song. It's to the worshiping people of God, this call to worship, as many of the psalms are, especially this portion of the psalms, this call to sing, and then it concludes with a prophetic warning. The psalms contain those at times. So he's addressing the worshiping people of God. And this psalm, what the author is going to notice, our author in Hebrews, what he's going to notice is that this psalm was written centuries after those events in the wilderness. And it was written centuries after the people inherited the land of Canaan. And here is the Holy Spirit still saying to the gathered worship, as he's calling the people to worship, gathered worship, he's still saying, today, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So how appropriate for us to hear this psalm. Now I said it's an interpretation and application of the events at Kadesh Barnea. <laughs> the Kadesh, do you remember those events there of Israel in the wilderness. That's what the writer of Hebrews has primarily in mind. That's what Psalm 95 has primarily in mind. Not just the entire 40-year period, but the climax of their rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. If you look at our text, look at Hebrews 3 and verse 8 as he goes on. Now, our author of Hebrews, his Bible is a Greek Bible. The Septuagint, we call it. The Greek translation of the Old Testament. So he's most comfortable there, and he's going to quote, just like I'm, when I quote, I'm going to quote an English Bible. He quotes his Greek Bible, Old Testament, the Septuagint, and he's quoting that here, and it Look at verse 8. He says, do not harden your hearts. Now, what the, Septu what the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible does, instead of giving uh, the place names, Meribah, Masa, it translates those names. So when you translate into a different language, you can translate, you can just spell the name, or you can give the meaning. And that's what it does. So that's what he does here. Do not harden your hearts as... In the rebellion. That's what Meribah means. As in the day of testing. So his, what he has in view, not, not the first events of when they grumbled at the water. Those, those were just precursors leading to the climactic rebellion at Kadesh. So that's what he has in view here. So do you remember the rebellion? Do you know that story? should be familiar with that story. Let me just take an aside here to remind us. It's found in the book of Numbers 13 and 14. Here, here's the context, if you don't know it. The people have left Mount Sinai, right? They received this great covenant, left Mount Sinai. There's some ups and downs through the wilderness. They get to the border of the land of promise, the, border, the southern border of Canaan, and the southern border of Canaan is Kadesh Barnea. If you remember the story, it's from there that they send in the spies. Do you remember that story, kids? Do you remember that? The 12 spies go into the land to, to scope it out. Strategy. How are we going to conquer this land? And remember, they come back and 10 of the spies bring this bad report. There's giants in the land, right? We, we cannot go in there. Only two. Remember, kids, who the two were? 
right? Joshua, Caleb, only two believed God's word. The rest said, we can't go in there. And they gave this bad report to the people. And what was the congregation the, in, the, in the wilderness? The people, what was their response? Let me, I'll put it on the screen here. You know, this is Numbers 14. Then all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And then they, they try to plea with him, and they, they're going to stone Moses and, and appoint another leader. God breaks in. God breaks in and says, just stand aside. I'll kill all of them. It's over. Moses pleads, as the great intercessor he does. God doesn't. Destroy all of them, but he pronounces this word, and this is what Psalm 95 is referring to. So let me just put this next part of the text up there from Numbers 14. Here's the Lord speaking now. He says, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. So he's swearing they will not enter into the land. He says this, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so surely I will do. Your corpses shall fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you. That's, that's the event, right? So let's go back to Hebrews 3 and Psalm 95, the quote. That's what he's referring to. Psalm 95 is referring to that our author is quoting. So let, let's pick up now, secondly, the meaning of Psalm 95. The meaning. He's, he's got this event at Kadesh in mind, the, the climax of the rebellion. So just note a few things as you think of what's Psalm 95 talking about. First, failure to trust in God's power, provision, and promise is defined as hard-hearted rebellion. See that? Do not harden your hearts, verse 8, as in the rebellion. So Moses said, don't rebel against the Lord. It's unbelief. It's what the writer of Hebrews is going to draw out in his application. Verse 12, he'll say, Beware lest you have an evil heart of unbelief. Verse 19, they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So at the root of their failure to obey God's word is unbelief. They don't believe God's word. Who were these people? (laughs) They're the people who saw my works, he says. Again, as I said, this is the generation that saw the ten plagues. This is the generation that walked through the Red Sea on dry ground and watched Pharaoh's army be destroyed. This is the generation that received water from the rock and manna from heaven. 
And they get here and they say, God can't do that. God's not good. He brought us out here to die. Oh, how much better is Egypt? (laughs) That's unbelief. They reject God and his promise. So understand what's going on in that event at Kadesh. It's not a momentary lapse of courage. It's a, culminate, it's a climax of their hard-hearted unbelief that's exposed now in that day of testing. They denied his goodness. They denied his power. They denied his promise. This is the whole point of your journey is the promised land. And they're saying, we'll die in that land. So he calls it the day of rebellion and the day of testing. And the testing here is they're testing God. Remember, we read it in Numbers 14. They put me to the test. They did not believe that he was reliable, that God was reliable, that God was true to his word. They didn't believe he was able. And out of unbelief, they demand that he prove himself again. That's putting the Lord to the test. This is unbelief. We saw a New Testament example in our reading this morning in Acts chapter 5. Did you notice that language? Why have you put the Holy Spirit, the Lord, to the test? Right? Unbelief. That's what's underneath it. This unbelief, not trusting God's goodness, His power, His promise, is seen in their disobedience. That is, they don't obey His word to enter the land. Disobedience... God's word at the root is unbelief, denying who he is, his goodness, his power, his promise. Notice also in the meaning of the psalm, next note, this unbelief provokes the Lord's anger issuing in his just judgment. Our author, as he quotes Psalm 95, he adds one word to help bring out the meaning, and it's the word in verse 10, therefore. So that's not in the original quotation. He's adding that to show you the connection. Because of their rebellion and their putting the Lord to the test, therefore I was angry with this generation. They always go astray in their heart. They do not know my ways. I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. He he inserts that there to make clear the connection between their rebellion and testing and the Lord's anger. His just Judgment for their continual refusal. They always go astray in their heart. This is a heart issue. As I said, it's not a momentary lack of courage. We all have that. It's not a momentary lapse of faith. It is the culmination of a hard-hearted rejection of God in spite of all that he has done for them. And that issue is ultimately in God's just judgment. I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. That's what's at stake here. God's very judgment in this unbelief. That's what our author is concerned about here for us and his readers. One last note under the meaning of Psalm 95. Canaan, promised land, is a type of God's ultimate rest. Do you see how the Holy Spirit here interprets what happened back there, verse 11. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter. What what do we expect there? 
They shall not enter the land, the promised land, because that's what God said over and over in Numbers 14. They shall not enter the land, which I swore to give them the promised land. But how's the Holy Spirit interpret it? They shall not enter my rest. You hear it? It's really important. <laughs> the promised land of Canaan becomes a type of this ultimate rest of God that will go all the way back to creation. And this theme, so that's really big. <laughs> it's a type of this salvation rest. So our author, very insightfully, as he looks at Psalm 95, he sees these two great truths. One is this predominant warning against rebellion and hard-hearted unbelief, but also an implicit promise of God's rest that continues. And so he's going to emphasize in the first part of his application, he's going to emphasize Unbelief, don't follow their example. But then in chapter 4, he's going to talk about rest, entering that rest. So that's why we sang that song. That's exactly right. We're bound for the promised land. It's an ultimate picture of that new city, that new Jerusalem. Now let's move, lastly, thirdly, we'll finish here. The exhortation of Psalm 95, because this is the main point. The exhortation. It's back to the beginning of his quote. This, this direct word of the Holy Spirit to the worshiping community. Today, so he's just speaking directly to us. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So I'll note these two things. The urgency and opportunity to hear, hear so as to obey, God's word continues today continues the urgency and opportunity to hear God's word as I mentioned this psalm is written long after those events centuries after those events in the wilderness it's written after centuries after the people have been settled in the land and yet the opportunity continues today today if you hear his voice today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts Today, if you hear his voice, remember, they, they did not listen to his voice back in Numbers 14. So if you hear his voice today, don't respond like them. So this day is a day of continuing opportunity to hear his voice. And that's exactly how the author is going to apply this, as we'll see next time, as he gets, look at verse 13, just sneak down there, just preview here, encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today. The opportunity is for today to hear his voice. So this opportunity continues. And with that today, there's a sense of urgency. That today means right now. Today, if you hear his voice, don't, don't delay till tomorrow. Today is the day if you hear his voice. So he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So there's a, there's a sense of danger here. Hearing his voice is the occasion for either a response tenderhearted in faith or a hardened unbelief. There's no neutrality. His voice, hearing his voice, occasions either belief, trust, or hard-hearted unbelief. So he says that if today you hear his voice, do not harden 
your hearts like they did. That is, second note, do not respond with a heart of unbelief and disobedience. That's a hard heart. Don't respond with a heart of unbelief and disobedience. We, we all know, we don't have to explain what a hard heart is. Unresponsive. It's insensitive. If it's hard, you can't make an impression on it. It's like wax, right? It's like wax, once it's hardened, it doesn't receive an imprint anymore. That's, that's what he's saying. The heart is hard. It doesn't make an impression. God's word doesn't anymore. What does he mean by that? Well, we have the example in Numbers 14. That's why he goes back to that example. If you want to see what a hard-hearted response to God's voice is, look at that example. They didn't respond in faith, in trust in God's power, in his provision for them, in his promises. That's what they failed. That's hard-hearted. And it's the culmination of many choices up to that point, of spurning God, of putting him to the test. Every time a trial comes, not trusting God. Not believing his word. And it culminates in this hard-hearted rebellion. And it includes thinking that a life of slavery back in Egypt looks a lot better than God's word. (laughs) Oh, the riches of Egypt. Oh, what we used to have in Egypt. Not that promised land where we'll die. That's a hard-hearted response. So, let me close. He's applying this psalm directly to us, Christians, and in a more intensified way. We, we have heard and are hearing God's voice in his Son. that's, That's the big point of this first part of his letter. God has spoken in his Son. We, we have heard his voice. He's not thinking of some just inner subjective that I hear. He's thinking of the word of God. How do you hear his voice? His word. He has spoken finally, definitively in the sun that far eclipses even what they heard on Mount Sinai. We have heard his voice and are hearing his voice. And so this exhortation. To not harden our hearts. This is intensified under the new covenant. Not set aside. We've heard the greater word, the voice of God, the final revelation of God in his son. We have heard that it has come. What is our response? So Christian, he's speaking to us. Every day we have the opportunity to respond in faith and obedience, trust and obey to his word every day, especially in those times of difficulty, especially in those times of trial, especially when we're called to bank on his promise when it doesn't seem humanly impossible. Because that's what they said. No way, can't do this. That's, That's where the reality of our faith will be seen. In that day, today, he says, if you hear his voice, we've heard it. We have the the opportunity day by day to respond, especially in those times of difficulty and trial. Do we believe him? Do we trust his word? Do we believe his promises? Or, Or do we respond with this 
lack of faith, this unbelief, this hard-heartedness. So ask yourself, Christian, today, do you, do you find yourself increasingly disinterested in Christ, in his word, in prayer, in worship, in missions, in the glory of God? Do you find yourself, do you find the pull back to Egypt stronger? The fleeting pleasures of this life more attractive. Tired of this manna. This manna? And eating this all the time. Oh, I wish we had what we had in Egypt. Right? That's the heart of unbelief. A hard heart that responds. So if that's you, if you feel that, oh, God's warning is gracious to you today. God's warnings are full of mercy. He's saying, respond, respond with tender heartedness. Respond, repent, cry to him for help. Remember, Jesus is able to come to the aid of those who are tested, tempted. Cry to him. Recognize it. So we're going to see it now. We're going to develop it over these next week and watch his very specific application to us. Now, let me say also, if you're not a Christian, this is written mainly to Christians, but obviously if you're not a Christian, oh, how much more so today if Today is his gracious invitation to you to trust in his word in Christ, to trust in Christ as Savior, to trust in his promises. So I just plead with you today, if you hear his voice, you hear this good news, don't, don't respond with hard heartedness. Because every time you're hearing this and you're making the choice to say, I don't believe that, the heart is growing hard. So today, hear his gracious invitation. To trust in Jesus. Amen. Let me pray for us as we close. Oh, Father, thank you for your gracious warnings. Help us now, wherever we're at, to take them to heart. To respond with tender-heartedness and not hard-heartedness. So, oh, keep us, Holy Spirit, from a hard heart. An, an evil heart of unbelief. Prick us now and... Convict us where we need it. And if any are without Christ, oh God, today, let them hear your voice and draw them to Jesus, I ask in his name. Amen.